Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Ethan Cross. Ethan, how are you? I'm great, Alex. Well, actually, I've got COVID, but the beauty of technology right now is we could still talk uh, with with COVID from a distance. So so that aside, I'm doing great and um, been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise. And this is a testament to your mental fortitude to be joining us amidst COVID infection. And perhaps there's a question embedded in there about what your chatter is like while you're performing on a podcast while having COVID. But before we get to that, I'd love to just have a a chance for the audience to learn a little bit more about you. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a a professor of psychology and and management organizations here at the University of Michigan in the psych department of the business school. And, um, you know, I run a lab, I direct a laboratory called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And essentially what we do in the lab is we like to think of ourselves as mind mechanics. So, uh, when it comes to emotions and emotions getting in the way of things. So we study self-control, which is our ability to align our thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with our goals. So you want to think, feel, or behave a certain way. How can we help people do that? Turns out probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to you that people often struggle with this across lots of domains of life from professional supports to kindergarten and everywhere in between. So we really try to get under the hood of the mind to figure out what are the nuts and bolts that make it possible to control our emotions under high performance, high stakes situations. And then once we, once we learn something about those mental mechanics, then we try to take that information and share it with folks outside of academia um, to help people manage their mind more effectively in their daily lives. And, um, and that keeps us really busy and is a lot of fun. And I think the work you're doing is tremendously important. Um, and you, you might have undersold yourself a little bit there, because I, I think you wrote a very popular book in the last year that got a lot of attention um, around a lot of the work that you've done in self-control and particularly this idea of chatter. Um, and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about you know, the premise of the book and, and what drew you to leading off a conversation about that. Yeah, happy to. Um, and, and thank you for those kind words about chatter. So um, what, what is chatter? Chatter refers to the dark side of introspection. So we have this um, remarkable thing. All of us have it. It's a human mind and this ability to, when, when we experience adversity, to focus our attention inward, to try to come up with solutions to our problems, whether they be on the court, in our relationships, at work, and beyond. The problem is that Sometimes when we deal with a problem, we focus inward, we do come up with a solution, but during lots of other situations, we end up stumbling, we ruminate, we worry, we catastrophize in ways that can be uh, really catastrophic for our ability to think and perform for our relationships and for our health. And so I think of chatter as one of the big problems we face as a culture. And it's one that you see play out very often on on the ball field, um, the court, use your favorite description, the pitch, um, where like this happens to us a lot, where our minds are getting the best of us. And um, 
what we know from decades of research is there are very simple science-based tools that exist that can help people manage their chatter more effectively to harness our mind to help us thrive. And, um, and so the book I wrote, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It, was, was all about, number one, normalizing this experience of chatter for people. Like when people come to me and say, hey, I experienced chatter at times, that means something's wrong with me. And I say, no, it means you're a human being. Welcome to the human condition. I think we need to recognize and acknowledge this. And then most importantly, give people tools to manage it. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you really quickly what actually led me to write this book, which awesome. was uh, an experience I actually had in the classroom uh, teaching about this material at the University of Michigan to seniors. On the final day of a small seminar I was leading on the topic of how to manage your, your emotions and your mind, a student asked me, why are we learning about this now? You know, why didn't anyone teach us about this stuff before we got here? Like, you know, we're learning about all these tools that can help us feel better, perform better, think better, have better relationships. You know, we're, we're seniors are graduating now, it's over. And, and my response to that student was, you know, fear not, you'll probably have opportunities to grapple with chatter once you leave college. But, but that aside, I didn't have a really great answer. And, um, and so the book was an attempt to, to answer that question. And, and I think the book is masterfully done and, and illustrates a lot of the ways that this chatter can interfere with high performance. And so I'm curious, you know, you talked about it being sort of the, the dark side of, of the mind. And if we could just back up one step, where does chatter come from? Like, how do people learn to internalize or develop their own chatter? How does that voice start? Yeah, great question. So let's let's do a quick kind of breakdown. Let me give you a framework for thinking about this. So number one, we all have an inner voice. And yeah, inner voice kind of froofy term that's often associated with new agey kinds of phenomena. Like I'm not a new age, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist here. Um, what do we mean? Nothing wrong, by the way, about the new age. My dad's a subscriber, but what do scientists mean when they use this term? What we're talking about is our ability to silently use language to reflect in our lives. Turns out that is a remarkable tool of the human mind that we all use all the time. Just to give you a couple examples of when we use this voice in our head, if you're, if you're just memorizing a phone number, um, I know we don't do that very much nowadays, but let's say I asked you to like memorize a piece of information, repeat a number in your head, 209-0501. Do it right now. Did you do it? 209-0501. Got it. Silently in your head. Okay. Come on. You got it, right? That's your inner voice. Your inner voice is part of what we call our working memory system. So, you know, like a player is in a huddle with coach before a consequential moment in the game and the coach is giving instructions on the play. The player is often repeating what they have to do in their head. That's their inner voice allowing them to do that. That's one thing it helps us do. We also use our inner voice when we are simulating and planning, like before an interview or a presentation. I'll often go over in my head what I'm going to say, word for word. Many people do this. So we use our inner voice to simulate and plan. We use it to control ourselves. Like I'm exercising in the gym. I'm typically like counting down the number of reps left in the torturous activity I'm engaging in. And I'm telling, all right, come on, you got to do it. You know, you're going on vacation soon <laughs> um, and whatnot. So we use our inner voice to coach ourselves along silently in our minds. Like, come on, you got this, man. You can do this. And then finally, 
we use our inner voice to 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 tell stories that that help us understand who we are. So things happen that we don't like in life. We're rejected. We don't win, and so forth. When that happens, we try to make sense of. Well, why did why did that happen? Why did Coach tell me I wasn't good enough? Or you know, I why did I screw this up? And we come up with explanations. And and our inner voice helps us come up with those explanations that really help us move on. So. So that's what your inner voice does. It is a remarkable tool. You don't want to get rid of that inner voice. Um, the problem is that oftentimes when the stakes are high, we reflexively turn to this tool, but we find that it's not working for us. Instead, it gets jammed up. And the reason for that is we start zooming in so narrowly on the problem at hand, we can't think of anything else. We can't look at the bigger picture. We can't get perspective. And when that happens, that's how you get things like Simone Biles experiencing the quote unquote twisties, which is another name for chatter, leading her to drop out of, of the Olympics, right? The pinnacle event of, of her career. That's how you get a lot of these kinds of choking episodes that we see happening in sports with increasing frequency, at least they're publicized with increasing frequency. That's how you get people just feeling under the emotional weather, right? Chronically, because they're ruminating and anxious about things. Um, and so that's really the, that, the terrain we're working with, which is, all right, if everyone's vulnerable to chatter, well, what can we do to both prevent it and mitigate it when it, when it strikes, particularly when it strikes when people are in your, in your domain, um, you know, playing for a championship? Yeah, I, I think first, like, incredible explanation and thanks for unpacking it for us a bit. And, and I really like how you framed it. You said one thing in there that really caught my attention and resonated for me, um, which was the idea of the coach in the huddle giving this feedback and the players sort of, you know, essentially repeating the instructions to themselves internally. And one way I've often conceptualized self-talk in my work with athletes has been around um, your self-talk or your chatter being your inner coach um, with this idea that, you know, well, the messages you hear from these significant other people in your life. I think do a bit become part of the narrative that you sort of tell yourself in these, in these different moments. And so I guess I'm wondering if, if you think I'm onto something there. So you're absolutely onto something. Um, we, the things we say to ourselves um, powerfully influence how we think, feel, and behave. And I think that's a point that we really want to um, convey to folks, players, coaches, management, and so forth. Um, I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, I, I've talked to like thousands and thousands of people since my book came out about this topic. And what's one of the things that's really interesting is a lot of people don't really understand what it even means to talk to yourself. They don't realize that that's a normal part of how we function as human beings. I think the reason for that is we don't teach kids about this growing up. Like there's no class on you know, self-talk 101 or psychology, even psychology. We don't talk about this at the dinner table per se. This is a perfectly normal feature of the human mind. If I asked you right now, Alex, I want you to silently hear your mom tell you to make, make your room. Could you hear like some semblance of her voice in her head? Yeah, I can. I'd encourage most listeners to do that right now. Like, you know, that's hearing a voice. We typically associate hearing voices with pathology that's a totally different category of experience that we're talking about. 
we're all capable of, of, of using language silently in lots of different ways in our mind. So I can, if I want to, and I sometimes do this, I guess the secret's out, before a big presentation, I will often hear my high school wrestling coach call me by my nickname and give me some encouraging feedback. And, and that's really motivating, right? That is that inner coach being channeled. Now, the second, the second reason I think this observation of yours is so important is we know that people can modify their self-talk. We've done experiments on this in my lab and others have as well. And I think that's really important because some people may have more disparaging internal monologues than others. You know, some people may be, may be like, you know, give me the ball, I want in, put me in, I'm gonna nail this, right? I've, you know, I've heard Kobe talk about some of his internal monologue yep, before big sure. moments. And I think that captures that fighting spirit really well. I think other players, and we may not hear about this, but there may be some like, oh shit, am I going to be able to rise to the occasion? Or hearing, you know, that 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 parental figure or whomever give you those self-disparaging remarks. And again, the key point here is that we can change that internal narrative. And it's often really simple to do. And when you do it, um, benefits typically ensue. So I guess, I mean, modifying the chatter seems like an important thing to be able to do and an important skill to learn. But there also seems to me like there's a place here for coaches to impact the chatter that their athletes have on the front end, essentially. So to like try to create chatter that's more facilitative or enhances performance versus chatter that might be distracting or, or even detrimental. And I'm wondering, one, is that accurate? And, and two, if that's the case, like how would you sort of educate coaches about the way to best use their voice to influence chatter like that. Yeah, uh, not surprisingly, we're, we're, we're on the same page here. Um, so I, let me give you another framework, which is how I think about intervening to get this science translated for maximal impact in an organizational context, and in particular, a sports context. Number one, we can get the information to players directly. And in my book, I talk about like 26 different tools. These are, there's a lot of like complexity that goes into the discovery of this, these tools. Like a lot of this research has taken decades of my life and many others, brain scanning studies, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, they're really easy, simple strategies to, to implement. Like just to give you one example, uh, this isn't worked by me, but, but, but others have looked at this. Um, you know, when you put people in a situation, they can reflexively, what they do is they ask to a stressful situation, they ask themselves two questions, what's required of me? And can I do it? If they answer that question, like, nope, I don't think I can manage it. That's a threat, a threat appraisal. And it predicts bad performance, bad physical health, bad feelings. But you can also just turn the switch and say, get people to think of this situation as something they can do. It's a challenge appraisal. And that leads to a better physical response, better performance, better health, like really simple but like 20 years of research went into that. Um, so we can teach strategies directly to players. I think that's really important. Then we can work with coaches and support staff to teach them how, as you're saying, um, how can they reinforce these tools that we're giving to athletes or how can they give them the tools themselves? There is an art to being a good chatter advisor to other people or chatter coach. And, and, and I'll, I'll get into what I mean by that in a little bit. 
Um, I don't think we all, I, I, well, I know this, many of our intuitions about what we think is gonna help other people when it comes to their chatter are often incorrect and can do more harm than good. And so I think focusing on the second element, how to enable our staff to be better advisors to others, critically important. Then the third level is at the organizational level, the kind of creating a culture that supports things like mental fitness. You know, I think we often, when we talk about mental health, um, I think a lot of people naturally get nervous, they pull away, there's a stigma associated with it. But when we talk about mental fitness and mental mechanics, in my experience, and there is some data behind this, people are much more likely to, to want to engage with those endeavors. And so creating an environment that, an organizational environment that doesn't support, just support getting peak physical you know, fitness training and, and physical mechanic kind of audits, but also mental mechanic stuff, I think that's another important layer to how all this works. So player, coaches, and organizations. So you said something about being a, a good chatter coach, and then this sort of, our, our instincts sometimes steer us wrong, it sounds like, in terms yeah. of what would be helpful. And I'm, I guess I'm curious if you could just give a couple examples of where maybe people, you know, something that people would default to that they think, hey, th this is probably going to help. And in actuality, what it does is the, is the opposite. Yeah. So let me give you the big one. Um, there are a few ways that this goes wrong, but the biggest is... Many people think that the way to help other people with their chatter is to just let them vent their emotions, just get it out in a safe space, unload. This is an idea that has a long history in science. It goes back to Aristotle and then Freud ran with it and you know, um, popular culture has been taking it ever since. And there's been a lot of research on this. And what we've learned is the following. Um, if you find someone, like, let's say you're in a player and a coach and the coach is someone you could really go to to talk about whatever's bugging you. Um, if all I do is vent to, let's say I'm the player, which is, uh, you know, one of the funniest things in the world because I'm five, five, eight on a good day of the week. But let's say I, I'm in, you know, the room with the coach and I'm talking, I'm sharing, I feel comfortable sharing what's going through my head. That's really good for our relationship. I feel good about the fact that I have someone I can actually communicate to. But if all I do is just vent what I'm going through, it doesn't help me actually reframe the problem in a way that ultimately lets me move on, get back to the court and, and you know, perform well in that situation. The key to being a good chatter advisor is to do two things. Number one, you, wanna, you do wanna take the time to listen and hear the person out. But at a certain point in the conversation, you want to start trying to help that athlete look at that bigger picture. You want to have them zoom out is the term I use. When we're experiencing chatter, we're tunnel vision. All we can think about is the stuff that's driving us crazy. And so the coach is in an ideal position to help that player look at that bigger picture where solutions often lie. Um, and there's a lot of work showing that that can be really useful. And interestingly enough, these are principles that are often used in um, in hostage negotiations by the FBI, by the NYPD. And, you know, I raise that not to equate a player or a person in crisis with a, a someone who's taken hostages, but in both cases, you are dealing with like a lot of emotion. And there is a playbook about how to coach other people through it that doesn't require extensive, you know, training. We're, we're not talking here about 
players who you've probably worked with who are experiencing full-blown episodes of anxiety and depression who you'd want to get more in-depth um, interventions with. We're talking about the kind of run-of-the-mill chatter that is part and parcel of most of our lives and that can often be nipped in the bud really quickly if you know the right person to talk to. And I think that's so important because you know, sometimes we might equate, especially in sport or any high, perf high performance environment, I think sometimes we would equate sort of like problematic or self-limiting chatter with this larger kind of clinical condition without necessarily appreciating the impact that say a coach or an advisor or a mentor might have on that chatter and might alleviate that altogether. And so this seems like a place where coaches, executives, high performers could really make a difference in the people that they're leading or are in charge of um, without having to necessarily defer all of it to a clinical specialist. It's absolutely the case. You know, to be clear, if a player is genuinely struggling with um, what appears to be like a clinical manifestation of anxiety, depression, you, you absolutely want to get them the more intense For sure. For help sure. that they need. But I would argue that in most of the situations, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about players who are who are playing under the spotlight, you know, with with you know social media and everything right on them. And look, these are stressful situations that can induce chatter, and they're often little things that you can do to ameliorate that. I mean, I'll give you an example from my own life here. Um, People often ask, hey, you wrote a book on this. Do you ever experience chatter yourself? Like, yes, I do at times. I'm a human Surprise. being. Right? <laughs> like most of us do, and I have yet to really encounter someone who doesn't. Um, it's part of the human condition. But knowing this science, like, yes, I still experience it at times, but I'm really good at nipping this in the bud when I need to and right away. I'm really good at shortening the amount of time I spend getting lost in the negative thought loop. Because what I do is I've got a go-to set of five or six tools that I implement right when I notice the chatter beginning to brew. And that often allows me to, to get back on track. Um, you know, just one other, one other reason why that chatter can be so debilitating for, for an athlete is when the athlete experiences it, it, it consumes all of their attention. And then it, it focuses them in on oftentimes like, what they're trying to do well, like shoot a basket. And if they're worried about whether they're going to shoot a basket, they zoom in really narrowly. And then they start thinking to themselves, oh, how, you know, do I have enough pressure on my fingers? Or have I, have I bounced the ball enough before the free throw? And once you start zooming in in that way, it leads to something that we call paralysis by analysis. It takes behaviors that athletes can typically perform in their sleep without thinking. And it, it, it makes them like it, what we call it unlinks those most complicated behaviors, makes it really hard for them to execute. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think, Sion Baylock's work, right, around choking yeah. and some of that. So I, I think you've done some incredible work around chatter. I want to ask one more question about it, but I also want to get to some of your other work around self-control briefly, because I, I think there's probably stuff there we can learn from. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one final tough question about chatter here before I okay. pivot us, which is if you were going to pick one of the, I think you said 26 tools that you lay out in your book for people to focus on or start to develop, what would be the one tool you'd advise people to begin with? Well, you know, this is like, like choosing between children. Um, 
I, actually, I'm glad you, you, you asked this question and I'm not going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit, but, but the fine. reason why it's such a hard question to answer is I can't in good conscious conscience recommend one tool. Um, I actually think it's a mistake of one of the, one of the ways that our culture is leading us astray right now is by telling us to try to find like the one magic pill that works sure. for people and also, you know, be in the moment, meditate, like rid your life of negativity. What <laughs> we know is we have evolved to possess lots of different tools that we can use. And if you look at the science, what we see is most people actually, they don't do one thing when they're experiencing chatter. They actually use several tools. And in fact, we've done some research which shows the more healthy tools you use at any given moment in time, the better off you are. So it's not about finding the one thing. It's more like finding the the four or five things to do. Now, that that shouldn't dissuade folks who are listening. Like, oh my God, this is so hard. These tools are often really simple to use. Like I'll give you my go-to set. Um, one thing I do, we know it's much easier for people to advise others than to give themselves advice when they're struggling with chatter. And most of us have had this experience, like a friend or a loved one comes to you with a problem. They don't know what to do. They present the problem to you. You can easily coach them through it. But when you're in the same situation, you crumble, you're, you know, you're in turmoil. Um, there's, a, there's a really neat lang linguistic tool that helps people with this. It's called distance self-talk. It involves using your name to coach yourself through a problem. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage the situation? Turns out, and there's lots of neuroscience research which supports this, that when you use your name to refer to yourself or the second person pronoun you, that switches your perspective. It gets you to start relating to yourself like you're giving advice to another person, to a friend, and that can be really useful. So I'll do that. Then I'll do something called temporal distancing. I'll think about how I'm gonna feel about this issue a month from now or a year from now. That instantly takes the edge off because it makes it clear to me that as awful as what I'm going through is right now, it'll eventually get better. If, that, if those two don't do the trick, then I whip out my, my cell phone and I call some of my chatter advisors. I've got like three who are on speed dial and they're there for me if I need them and vice versa, me for them and you know so forth and so on. So those are simple things to do, but I don't have to think twice about what to do. I know exactly what to do in the heat of the moment. I appreciate the depth of that answer and, and agree. I know I was putting you in a tough position to give me one thing, but I think that the menu you laid out is, wonderful and I think a great place to start. So I want to spend a few minutes on the rest of your work and then I've got some kind of rapid fire questions <laughs> for you as a high performer. So I guess if you were to pick up, I'm going to ask you to pick between your favorite children again, but you know, if you look at your work beyond chatter, what work do you feel really passionately about that you wish coaches or other high performers knew more about and appreciated more? Um, I'll, I'll give you two, um, zooming in and zooming out, which is, you know, most of the work that I've done is focused on this concept of, um, what we call self-distancing, this ability to step outside of ourselves and think about our lives from a slightly more objective perspective. Um, you know, this is often talked about in, in meditative contexts as one of the things that mindfulness helps people do. But what we've learned is that, there are lots of tools that are relatively easy to implement that can get you to this endpoint of being more objective when you're thinking about your circumstances that don't require a meditation um, and can be done much more efficiently. So this zooming out psychological distancing piece, I think that's a really important um, 
lever that we all possess to manage our emotions and performance more effectively. So would love to chat more with folks about that or have them read that material. And then the second piece has to do with a totally different domain that I've spent a lot of time doing work in, which is about social media and how it impacts our well-being. I think this is actually very relevant for players too. Um, you know, we've been looking at the impact that social media has on well-being for over 10 years. And uh, what we what we now know is that it it most certainly does can impact people's emotional lives, particularly people I think um, who are under the spotlight. And um, but it can do so in helpful or harmful ways. And what's so interesting about social media is I think of this as a new environment that we spend a lot of time interacting in. It's it's you know similar to the the physical world, but it's online. And what's interesting about environments is we learn from a really young age how to profitably navigate our physical environment. Your parents teach you like where to go, what to do, who to talk with, how to talk with them to, to benefit you. Like you learn not to do the wrong things because that can get you into deep, deep trouble. But now we've got this entirely new digital landscape and we have no guidance about how to navigate this landscape in a way that ultimately makes it work for us rather than against us. And, and you know, we're now at a point where we've learned a lot about how to navigate it well. And I think that information should be disseminated because you know, I think some people often describe navigating social media as dodging landmines, like emotional, negative emotional landmines. They don't know when on Twitter they're gonna come across it or on Instagram, but and they're gonna feel awful. And um, I think there are ways to, to help people uh, navigate that space more effectively that our research has shown. So I want to go down both paths at the same time, because I think both are, are highly relevant, but it might get a little complicated. We'll see. So I guess first, can you talk about when I'm hearing the psychological distancing concept, I, what immediately comes to mind for me, for whatever reason, is helping people cope in sport with loss or in some other high performance environment like law or sales with basically a hard no or you lose the case or whatever it might be. Um, and I think the reason for that is I start to think about like, how do you put that into a larger context um, where in the moment it often feels sometimes career defining um, at the very least sort of immediate life defining. Um, but I, I do think that sense of being a little bit overwhelmed by those experiences can then dictate behavior in a way that's maybe not always helpful. So let's start there. I'd love to unpack that. And then I'll circle back to the social media piece um, because I do want to make sure we get at least one thing in there about that too. Yeah. Well, I think what we're talking about, you know, with distancing and the counterpoint to distancing, which is immersion. When we detect, so we, like, if we're, you know, stepping back a little bit, um, we're lazy creatures, human beings. We don't like to expend much effort. And we, if, if, if it were up to us, we would navigate the world on autopilot without having to expend any real energy to do things differently. That's what we're how we're designed to navigate this, this world. When we experience some negativity or challenge in our life that, that, that leads us to question our sense of who we are, our performance and so forth, that's when we start, we stop and we take our attentional spotlight and we start thinking about that problem. We zoom in on it, makes sense, right? There's a problem, let's, let's take our mind and focus on the problem to, to solve it. 
The problem with chatter and the terrain that we've been talking about all throughout this call is we then get stuck because we're trying to think very methodically about how we can work through this problem and come up with a solution. But the all of the negative emotions zoom in really narrowly. And then when we do so, the emotions start flooding us and we can't we can't think through methodically the issue at hand. That's when stepping back to zoom out and look at that bigger picture is often so incredibly useful because we often have the tools that we need to solve our problems. It's just, they're not apparent in the heat of the moment when we are struggling endlessly. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had experiences where I was like terribly worried about something. And then like the next day, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I was actually worried about that. It seems so inconsequential. So rather than having to wait a day, a week or a month to have that insight, we've learned that there are tools that can give it to people right away. And, you know, there are instances where zooming out may may still not provide you with the solution you need to work through a really problematic moment in your life. But zooming out still can give you the awareness that, hey, well, maybe I should talk to one of my chatter coaches to get their input because then maybe that they can help me in that situation. So that's like elevating the significance of the case while still not, you know, going to the deep end um, with respect to um, having to see a therapist or anything like that. So, um, so that's how all of this operates, uh, this distancing, zooming in, zooming out. Yeah, I think it's really important because it, it's just about having another tool in the toolbox, particularly in high stakes or high stress situations where, you know, the tunnel vision comes in, the chatter kicks in, all of that stuff. And sometimes, like I said, I think that can lead us down a path behaviorally that with a little bit more distance, whether it's the next day or the next week or the next game or whatever it is, we sometimes wish we didn't quite go that far. Um, But I think obviously in the moment, it's incredibly challenging, particularly when this outcome is so closely tied to how we see ourselves and the work that we do. Um, so I, I think it's, it's incredibly important. I want to ask one question about social media, although it looks like you have something you want to share about that. So don't let me stop you. Oh yeah. I just wanted to add one more thing. I think it's a useful, useful, um, metaphor, um, or analogy in this case, I guess would be just to think about, like, think about how our understanding of the, of like biomechanics has revolutionized sports performance and training. Like, we now have a sophisticated understanding of how the, the, the body works and that information we can use to prepare our, our athletes to perform optimally under stress and when they're injured to get them back up to speed as quickly as possible. I think that has been like a revolutionary event in the history of, of you know, peak performance training and so forth. I think our understanding of the mental side of things has lagged far behind in the sense that up until recently, relatively recently, I I think in sports, we have treated the mind as if we're even going to talk about emotions in the mind, it's a big black box. And there are like, yeah, maybe some things you can do like deep breathing and and, and other things, you know, meditation, both of which are useful, by the way, don't mean to poo-poo that at all. But But like those are things you can do to kind of help a little bit with the mental side of things. We have gone much further, right? We now have a pretty reasonably good understanding of mental mechanics, of the basic nuts and bolts that govern what emotions are, how they work, how they impact our performance and so forth. And we can leverage that knowledge 
to do the same things when it comes to the emotional mental side of the game that biomechanics have done to you know the physical side and they're intimately related so so i guess that's a that's a that's one way i'd put all this together and the zooming in zooming out the distance that's one set of mechanics that's involved here that's a nice way of framing it and i think a helpful way of thinking about it similarly to the mental fitness language right there's just some new conceptualizations i think we can introduce around this that that will help people think about it more flexibly and interact with it and i think a more facilitative way um and and mental health is obviously a critical part of what should be addressed in all these high performance contexts but there's the other piece of the spectrum is the mental performance side or the mental fitness side and, and from my perspective they're so intimately intertwined um, for all high performers that you're not really going to get one without the other. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, not, not really very different from like physical fitness and, and um, physical health, you know, like um, most of us or a lot of us are, are, you know, reasonably watching our diet, trying to work out to remain fit Um if, if we lay off that too much, we can tip into having physical health problems, right? But it's not like you are only giving information about diet and fitness to people who are morbidly obese and struggling with health conditions. Like that would be catastrophic for public health and, 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 and lots of other outcomes that we care about. And I, I think the same is true for the mental side of things. You know, you deal with the mental fitness side and you're going to be preventing lots of bad things from from happening. But you you know, and you still obviously provide resources when you need it for for the bad things when they occur. For sure, for sure. So I want to spend I want to ask one question about the social yeah. media piece because I think it's important. And then I want to spend a few minutes unpacking your fair, unfair advantage and maybe helping some other people think about how how they might find theirs. So <laughs> the, the piece of the social media discussion that really resonated for me, and I've done, you know, read some of the research about this, is that it, it's not so black and white. It's not all bad, and it's not all good. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could just maybe shed some light on the parts that are actually helpful for people and how people can engage in a helpful way, um, you know, because I think it's it's such a, at this point, integral part of almost everyone's life. Um, and then maybe some of the dark sides of social media that we should try to guard against a little bit. Yeah, well, let me just say, I completely agree with your characterization of this. Um, and, you know, I, I have a bit of a history in this space because um, my group was the first to look at the the impact that social media has on well-being over time. We did this about over 10 years ago and um, the paper got a ton of attention. And the conclusion was the more you use social media, the worse you feel, the less satisfied you are with your life. And um, we've really revised our conclusions over time as we've done more work. And, and my feeling on this now, and we just published a big review of this literature, is that it really does depend on how you use it. There are ways of using it that can harm you, and then other ways that can help you. Um, so harming you, we know that social media makes it much easier for people to just spew the emotions and you know negative thoughts that are on their mind you're not talking to another person face to face all the empathy cues that are built into face to face contact or even the kind of digital communication we're engaging in now via zoom that's missing when you're tech you know just kind of typing your emotions into a prompt and and indeed many social media platforms or some actually say like what is on your mind type whatever is flowing through your mind 
we know that people like to let their emotions out when um, when they're experiencing them. And so what ends up happening is you get things like, um, you know, people venting and, and that's often targeted at other people. And it can lead to things like cyberbullying and trolling, which are uh, events that are linked with significant negative outcomes for folks, not just on the receiving end, mind you, also on the produce, production end, people who are often venting themselves and going after others, like they then, there are reputational consequences that people have that people experience for engaging in that kind of behavior. We've seen this happen in the NBA um, continually with, with stars going, you know, saying things that they shouldn't have, being censored as a result. So just understanding the dynamics, like, so when knowing, for example, that when I experience emotion, most of us are very motivated to share it with other people. I think knowing about that little nugget can be really helpful for preventing you from maybe saying things that you might later regret. Um, so that's one way it can harm folks. Another another way is through social comparisons. Um, we can curate how we present ourselves online, and we often do. And, and there's really good reason for that, right? I mean, we're always curating the way we present ourselves to others. I sure. I comb my hair before this call with you today. It looks like your beard is nicely quaffed um, and so forth, right? So, um, but we could take that to an extreme on social media. We do. And when we stumble on people who are in our, our kind of like domain, people who are at our same level in the same industries or so forth, we can often feel um, envious of them when we're, when we're tuning in on their glorified lives and are fully aware of the ordinariness of, of our own, uh, even when our own lives are not ordinary. So those social comparisons can be, can be harmful um, for many people at times too. So those are two bad things that can happen. On the upshot, social media, it gives us the opportunity to get support and provide it for others in a way that we've never had in the history of our species. So we can reach huge numbers of people and corral these huge support networks in ways that can be quite useful. Um, and, and there is also, secondly, there's a flip side to the social comparison piece, which is there's some studies which show if you ask people to just like scan through their, you know, their, their social media feed and look at what they've posted, because you've posted all this amazing stuff, you tend to feel good about yourself and your life. It gives you this like ego boost, if you will, that can make people feel better um, temporarily as well. So those are a couple of examples of how to navigate the sites for better or worse. Awesome. Those are, are really interesting examples. And I think good things for all of us to keep in mind as we work with folks, you know, who are heavily involved in social media or try to think through the impacts of social media. I think it's great. So I want to close us out here with a few more rapid fire questions, a little bit of quick back and forth to get to know you a little bit better as a high performer. Does that sound good? Let's do it. <clears throat> what, what in your work are you most proud of? Um, talking about science to non-scientists in a way that conveys the significance of the information and lets, lets those non-scientists use it um, to improve some feature of their life. Awesome. What do other people often get wrong about you? That I never experienced chatter. Good one. Good one. All right. If you could spend a week learning another field or another subject, what would you pick and why? 
Uh, okay, there are two. Um, That's fine. We'll take two. Aspirational and practical. Practical, uh, you know, like coding and computer science. It's revolutionizing how we do science. And I'm totally beholden to my students at this point. Uh, you know, I have no idea what. It's like the matrix to me when I look at their computer screens. Likewise. Uh, so that would be a great skill to have. Uh, more aspirational. Uh, I'd love to do a deep dive into history. I've always been fascinated uh, about learning, learning from the people who've come before us. And um, so it'd be great to dig into that if I had more time. Very cool. All right, a couple more. What do you think is your unfair advantage or what separates you from other high performers in your field? Um, I'm really good at positively reframing things and being optimistic and finding the silver lining uh, without being unrealistic, without being um, naive. Um, so I recognize when things aren't going well or and that happens a fair amount, but I don't let that bring me down. I keep moving. That's awesome. Hap happens a fair amount to all of us, I think. So that's a, that's a good superpower to have. And, and last one, what advice might you give to other people who are looking to find and cultivate their unfair advantage as a high performer? You know, I think playing to your strengths is is not a bad, you know, I think we should always be trying to master new domains and, and, and have these reach goals. But also, I think over time, we do learn about what we're really good at. And um, if you value that, I think diving in, not trying to be something you're not, um, I think can be valuable valuable advice, particularly when you're talking about elite athletes and people already in that high performing domain. I mean, they're so good and they have these skills and talents that have gotten them to the pinnacle of their industry. So really just keep leaning into those um, skill sets and talents and strengths. Uh, and, you know, don't, don't try to be something else um, if you don't need to. Dr. Ethan Cross, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Before I let you go, um, I'll be sure I include a link to your book, um, but where can people find you or follow you on social media? Uh, they could find me on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram. And um, there are links to all those sites and my book and my lab on my, my website, www.ethancrosswithakkross.com. Perfect. I will make sure that link gets shared too. Ethan, again, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, hope to do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.